Hello, my good friends. Welcome to another episode of The Lamar Show. Uh, this week, I talked to the other half of Modest Management. I say other half because in episode eight, I spoke to Richard Griffiths. He is one half of Modest Management. And today, I speak to Harry McGee. He's the other half. All right, so you get it, other half. All right, always good catching up with Harry. He has a certain uh, taste, a certain je ne sais quoi. So if you'd like to see any images from today's episode, you can go on over to the website, thelamarshow.com, and you can see all the imagery from our day. Shout out to all the new subscribers. If you haven't subscribed already, what you're doing, uh, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, um, yeah, let's get to it. I like it too. <laughs> Hence, which is why you live here. Which is why you live here. Oh, you know, you gotta, you gotta have that right feeling of space and to get your head in the right place. Yeah, I particularly like the. the what's the, the name of the art? The the light one, the light, the flashing light one. Oh, that's like uh, it's one of the Freud girls to, from the Freud family. Okay. Uh, Very nice piece of artwork, I must yeah. say. Really, uh, what is it? Imaginative. Yeah. Is that the word? Uh, very. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a we're in the art art room here. <laughs> yeah, the art room. Yeah, exactly with the piano, which I tried to play. Um, it, it's been a while, but yeah. Uh, so I spoke to your other half in the business world, Richard Griffiths, obviously. Yeah, and no doubt your name came up at a certain point. But I spoke to Richard about like where he started and how he got to being a manager. Because I don't know anyone I'd speak to about Richard. The, he was I don't know he was always at a certain like the head of something, the head of a label, the head of a thing, the head of a mm. publisher. So I wanted to know like where that started. And for me, even on his journey, I don't know, the, the beginning was still like head of the college band. It was, it was never, you know, I don't know, the, the, the tea maker in mm. the college band, you know? So uh, I, I thought, what about Harry? Mm. Cause you and you're the Yang to Richard's Ying mm. or the other, I don't know which way it is. Mm. So I thought, yeah, do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy talking to Harry. And I'd like to know, for you, where did music start? Like, was it at college or was it afterwards? Was it a concerted decision? Were you going down a different path first? I don't know. No, it was always a concerted ambition and decision. Um, to do music, yeah? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I always loved music. And from an early age, you know, my sister, uh, one boyfriend in particular that she had introduced me to some uh, some different music i then went on to start djing when i was from the age of 16 16 yeah so how old were you when your um sisters uh, i'm presuming your sister's older than you right yeah a couple of years yeah so your sister's boyfriend so how old are you well, like like 14 15 uh when he yeah you. like like probably 12 13 13 probably 13 12, so you were 13. very impressionable 13 is a yeah, very 13, impressionable 13 14 yeah okay so you, you so he introduced us what what type of music what? was it rock music uh, was no, it, it was um, like, hip hop what uh no no to go into that a bit later but uh, ne um no it was like neil young um elton john nice uh free paul rogers great blue and led zeppelin classic stuff classic stuff yeah more on the uh, kind of rock singer songwriter side james taylor uh you know just carol king tapestry oh, album brilliant 
stuff like that. Yeah. So that was when you were 13 and then that made you think, do you know what? This is really cool. So at that point, it must've just been, you're enjoying music and this is what you love doing. Well, you, this is what you love doing in your past time alongside school. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just like listening to lots of music and, okay. and, uh, and then listening to radio a lot uh, and then doing some tape, mixed, you know, cassette, mixtape type things. Um, mixtapes? I used to make tapes. tapes. I'd make tapes for, for people. No. But that was more when I was, when I was a bit older, that was kind of 16 upwards yeah. more. But anyway, my DJing thing was like for five years and I used to. Five years? That, I did it from 16 to 21. But then, but then we, you know, at that time there was like, you know, it was like disco chic, earth, wind and fire, you know, so that all nice. that kind of. So soulful disco kind of vibe. Yeah. yeah. Northern soul. Yeah. A bit of Northern soul. Uh, and then there were, and then punk came in 76. So we used to do, I just used to do, punk stuff as well so a real mixture it's dj punk yeah yeah just do i could do different nights nice <laughs> uh punk. yeah I, I can't say that i ever really like got into punk no well yeah. I, I mean but there's some of that new wave stuff had beats that the, the sort of post-punk stuff nice like talking heads and stuff like that okay that came out after that yeah but um no there was you know some proper proper punk ones as well yeah. um i was just trying to think because you said earlier you used to make tapes for people i was thinking yeah. in this day and age what would that be that'll be making a play a playlist for someone exactly <laughs> doesn't have the quite the same hi babe because i made a tape for my girl my, my missus back yeah. in the day and it must have been good because she's still with me right yeah. i yeah. made a tape you know but, with all the bunch of love songs yeah and words that i'd like to say but they're singing it so what you know i mean i could have sung it to be fair but, um, yeah. but, um, but yeah you know so nowadays it'd be a playlist that wouldn't be that wouldn't have the same effect would it it wouldn't have the same romantic connotations, no. no. You can't put a playlist in a in a red ribbon and no. or wrap it anyway. anyway. Uh, so yeah, anyway, so uh, you did from sixteen to twenty one DJing. Yeah. And what were you doing alongside that? Well, at school, right? You were still at school, or you dropped out of school? Yeah, I was at school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was always you know doing something. Um, okay. You know, even at school, I remember getting uh, in trouble at school when I was like eleven. I used to make cakes and peppermint creams and ice <laughs> uh, coconut ice and, and i used to sell them at break you know and i used to sell them at, i used to undercut the school canteen <laughs> and sell them. and i i managed to do it for two weeks and then they saw me taking money and they said mcgee come and see me after school but, but you uh, see do you know what though that's the entrepreneurial mind well you know i've, I've always had a bit of that i think uh, and and i uh i then did business studies at college and I anyway there was a local record shop that opened fairly local south of Manchester this is and uh I just wanted to go and work there you know so I so I just kind of kind of got in there and told the guy I wanted a job and just hassled him until he gave me a job and I used to work there on Saturdays to start with when I was still at school then I ended up working there full time and then I managed he opened another branch and I so I managed the two branches. Place. I managed one branch, then two, then both of them. Yeah. Okay. So you had the the already already the managerial skills started coming in there. You know, yeah, you're, you're you having to self look over two businesses. Yeah. yeah. And, and you just yeah. figure it out. No one's no one's really. Plus, trained. you studied business studies, so that's going to help. Yeah, that helped a bit. Yeah. When you chose to study business studies, I'm assuming it was a you know a concerted decision. When you chose to study business studies, like was that with an aim to be something in along the you know. Um, I I just don't think I really knew what I wanted to do. Okay, and I I like the list of subjects, but to be honest with you, at that time, 
there wasn't any computers. So when it said computer studied or statistics or whatever it was in, yeah. in the list of subjects, that, I mean, it was it was pretty dull learning yeah. that shit from a textbook, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, mean I, I didn't enjoy it particularly, yeah. but I enjoyed being at college. And, yeah. you know, as often is the case, people start bands. So I, I had a friends who were in the same doing the same course as me who were in a, in a band and uh you know i i used, they used to play me their music ask me what i thought and i always had an opinion and they just started, as friends and they started yeah then they started doing dates and then and then i became the sort of like a go-to guy that they'd come and play the songs to that are just written and then i used to go to the rehearsals and go to the gigs and you know and and and, and i kind of Always seemed to have an opinion on what they were doing. And were you were you one of those brutal people, or were you just were just? Oh honest? no no no! I was probably, yeah. I'm, I'm always pretty honest about these things, but um, yeah. And they were just trying to find a direction, you know, a musical direction, and figure things out, and 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 build a following, and and um, yeah. So so I I suppose, and I, and I've never really talked about this before. I actually thought I'm just thinking then when you started to talk about um, early beginning times you know beginnings of of uh of my interest in music and i suppose i felt i had something to say for whatever reason um of course i had no idea what i was doing but (laughs) i just felt compelled to sort of have an opinion on 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 what they were doing for whatever reason i probably compared that to what was going on in the market and where it sat so i suppose my brain was kind of working a bit like that even when i was um you know 18 yeah already geared in that in that direction yeah yeah, i suppose it was just something that i felt you know and and not i wouldn't say even an ability but i felt an affinity towards yeah 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 um so and that was while you were studying business study still yeah with those guys there then i went on and did the works in the record store and so i did that and my my father was in um the building uh uh, trade. He, he had a, a company that subcontracted um, acoustic ceilings. So, Is so his company, you know, those suspended ceilings where they have all the uh, air conditioning and electrics above it, and they yeah. have, have a grid system with these acoustic tiles in, and all this. I mean, pretty unattractive <laughs> uh, <laughs> bit of decor or architecture. But anyway, so everywhere in in that in that time, everybody had them. So he did like Manchester Airport contract. He did. He had all the Cheshire schools contract education authority you know and did some big office developments in manchester so his his company you know did did, did well so he were so i were so when i finished when I, I had this period well he he used to say to me i want you know i want you to come in and you know come into the business and i know interest in that obviously and they thought you know they they put up with me you know, I guess I guess the DJing thing. You know, I made some money, so um, you I, know, I wasn't. I was. I suppose if I made some money, I meant I wasn't asking them for anything. So um, yeah, that was okay. So then uh, I thought, you know, I'd like to make a career out of out of music, but I want to move to. Lo- I'd have to move to London to do that. Oh, where were you at that point? I was in Manchester still. Okay, south, south in in south of Manchester, Mancunian. So that was where I where I uh, uh, grew had, up. Had the, I grew up and had you know that's where the record shop. What was you you do college. not have a Mancunian accent in the slightest. I, but not usually, no. <laughs> when I'm around Mancunians, it 
Oh, okay. I slip into it. So if you go back to Manchester, then you... Tiny then you, bit, tiny bit. When I go to my Manchester United games. Oh, yeah, then it comes up. A bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so I thought um, I should move to London. There's this guy who is actually a sales rep for Warner Brothers. Okay. Who moved down to London and became an A&R guy. Um, also for Warner Brothers, for WEA, I think it was. And he... Um, yeah, so I stayed in touch with him and I thought, you know, I, I think I want to go and do something like that. So uh, I decided to go to America and travel a bit. So I went to to California for um, three or four months and, and ended up, uh, you know, meeting people there who I'm still very good friends with and getting to, this is 1980 now, um, and I ran out of money and then went and did some landscaping in, in the desert, <laughs> some landscape gardening, to getting paid by uh, this girl I met. Dad was a was a um, had some properties in the desert, so I, yeah. so I earned my money to get my airfare back home. So, what made you go? So, to I just needed to figure out what was. I, I think I just wanted to have one. So, did you make it from Manchester to London? Yeah, well, I went to LA first, came back, okay. <laughs> right. I went to California, came came back, and my dad had one last go at trying to get to persuade me to join the business the company and yeah, the yeah. business. In fact, when I when I said goodbye to him when I was getting the train down to London, uh, he um, he still tried. He still said, "Are you sure?" Uh, right, right, right at the last minute, he was trying uh. to persuade me. Bless him. So so. Um, so yeah, so I so I did that, and I'm I met I didn't have a job, so I met I'm I'm I should have said this was uh, um, um, slightly precipitated, or the catalyst for it was apart from the desire that I had to to move to London and, and to try and make music a proper career. Um, I this guy who was at uh, Warner Brothers as an A and R guy had left and started his own publishing company. So yeah. how did you meet the guy, the Warner Brothers guy? He was guy? a sales rep. So when I was oh, in the record the store, okay. he used to come in the record store for Warner Brothers and he was their sales guy. And From London, I latest, see. Do the latest releases for that, for right. that month and, and, you know, you pre-order and the whole thing. So then he got a job as in A&R. So he left sales, went into A&R. Then he left Warner Brothers and started a publishing company. Okay. And he, you know, explained to me what publishing was and told, told me that it was a good thing get into so he's playing me all this music at his house and i and again i had an opinion on what he was playing me he's playing <laughs> me this new stuff new you know different artists and writers that he'd been working with how old were you by that point 22 so 16 uh djing five years to 21 when did you go to la how uh, old 21 a year before when i was 21 20 oh, so you did a year in la I did. Well, I did a few months and then came back and then Manchester and then back to, and then down to London. So I said to, to this guy, you know, this is what I think about this and that. And he said, you know, you've got, you know, you've got a good ear. You know, you should, you know, what do you want to come and work for me part time? So that then I knew that I had something to go to, which was, you know, when so when I moved to London, that that was um, that was what I first did, okay. and I learned about publishing and work with different writers. Um, and I would go into the studio and and I'd go to their 
apartments and with a porter studio, like a four track porter studio, and <laughs> and, and, reco- and and sit there and we'd record songs. Nice. Uh, so the the four track recorder was yours, theirs, what? It was the company's. Yeah, it was, so it, was your company. it was ours. And, and uh, so they they write. So you're basically you're hosting the writing session, so to speak. Yeah, we were the publisher. We were their publisher. So we'd okay. go and and you know try and um, obviously get them to record their songs to a decent standard to try and then get it covered. Them. Nice. Yeah, some of them were writer artists as well, not and others were just just writers. Um, one of the writers we had was a, a, a Danish guy actually who um, had some success in Sweden. Danish people and just that whole area of the world are very good with writing pop songs. They are. That's really good. I don't know. Yeah. They are. Yeah. And he was a massive, he was massive David Bowie, Lou Reed um, fan, this guy. But he was, he, was, he was an artist and a writer. And we ended up uh, doing some videos with him and getting him a record deal and all that stuff. So, oh, okay. As a publisher? As, the, as his publisher, we did that other stuff, yeah. Nice. Uh, and he put me in touch with, um, or I got to know, this Swedish company who had a venue uh, in Stockholm and they were promoters but they also had a record label and a publishing company as well as a venue and a little merchandise company and they were looking some, for somebody in London who could get UK and American artists through the UK agents to come and tour Sweden and other parts of Scandinavia using their venue in Stockholm that they had the rights to exclusively as um, you know the hub of the tour you know okay and so then i then but they had a record label as well so what they had acts signed to the label they had um you know acts signed to the publishing company so um, most of what i did was uh having meetings with uh agents and trying to persuade them to use us like on on newer bands so what we did we had rem we had uh cocteau twins we had echo and the Bunnymen. we had we had a lot of interesting artists mostly well a combination of british and american but we you know they why would they try risk trying out a new promoter yeah. in scandinavia so it'd only be the newer bands that we'd get but we actually got some some bigger ones as well but it kind of got me into uh you know teaching myself that side of the business yeah. um Anyway, so I was on the board of their company and I used to go back and forth to Stockholm a lot. Were you still, still so you're still at the publishing company? I'd left. I only did that for a year and a half. Okay, uh, so you're now just officially on the board now? I was on the board of the Swedish company and yeah. I'm, about 20, I'm about 24 by now. Okay, so two years at the publishing company. Yes, almost. And then um, I uh, decided that... I, this this wasn't gonna be a long term thing. Okay, but I particularly like one of the guys who who was a journalist, but he was also an A and R guy, and he was only eighteen or nineteen. Right, this guy called Pear Pear Kvimen, who I went on to uh, employ when I ran RCA and bought, and he kept, came to the UK and relocated here with his family. And rem- he remains one of my best friends. So we, we, oh, whoa, we, okay. talk, we talk all the time and we, I stay here. What is it that you liked about him back then? He just had, he just had a really good ear. But he was, okay. when he went into a journalist, he was a massive music fan. He used to interview artists from, from you know, like, you know, top artists for, for this, uh, for the most popular music magazine in uh, Sweden at the time. Okay. And, he, and anyway, he's the one who 
direct he he, he was the a and r guy really of this company and i decided that i didn't want to work there anymore um and i should work with pear he's the guy that i got on with best and and i thought you know he was the most talented guy in the company yeah um certainly creatively so i left and i persuaded him to leave and we started a new company together so it's all amicable I wouldn't say all amicable, but I think I, you know, the Swedes are are good natured, yeah, yeah. diplomatic people. We didn't yeah. have to very straightforward, it, yeah. but yeah, no, but there was no nobody sued each other. So, so, um, so you, know, you had an idea. What did you leave? To we set up? set up a record label and okay. a publishing company. Um, the record label was called Wire W I R E Wire Records, okay. and the publishing company was called Red Herring Music. All right, yeah. Why Wire? Why that name? I can't remember to be really honest with you, but we're, our logo was this guy welding with a helmet, and he was welding the word wire. Wire, okay. And it and it was, it was pretty cool actually. Yeah. Um. So, um. What about red herring? I don't know what made me think of that, but they're, they're two like not yeah, uh, not her- obvious names. Red right. herring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe it was a herring Swedish fish thing. I don't know. And <laughs> so we started to sign various things. I mean, we probably ended up with, um, I don't know, six artists. Okay. And we, the main thing is it taught us all kinds of skill sets. So we, so A&R, writing, communicating with artists, you know, positioning them, setting out a musical vision, um, the live thing, you know the press making videos yeah sales and marketing yeah and you had an international and business affairs contracts and everything so you had to be involved in everything i mean we ended up having an assistant each or maybe we're not really assistant in that sense or some you know we all had we all did loads of different things so the company was never more than five people. Every okay. everybody else was, you know, we just, we just bring people employed, in and, and yeah, that's very close knit. Then five people, yeah, and then and, and that was based and, in the UK and Stockholm. So we had and an Stockholm. office. Pear was in Stock Stockholm most of the time. Most of the acts were Swedish, not, okay, not English. So he was in Stock. He was in Stockholm. I was in London. Yeah, and I used to go back and forth. we both went back and forth. Was it hard convincing Pear to? join you to start up the label how did you approach him or was it was that conversation already bubbling i i think we just felt it just felt like the right thing to do and okay, i felt so it wasn't like, a hard sell no i just think we both felt that's where we wanted to spend our time uh more than doing the prom- promoting the venue and and doing the touring thing we felt we wanted to get into the into the into the record yeah. side of it and working out distribution and the and the right places to get to get your records pressed and and the and doing the right deals on the printing of the sleeves and the design of the art you know absolutely everything you know you have yeah. to sort of figure out the right suppliers and and figure out the budget so it was just about learning um every aspect and having an understanding who does what, you know, what that role is, how much effort has to go into that, what skill set defines that role within that process. And when you do it yourself, um, you know, I know this is obvious, but when you, know, when you roll your sleeves up and, you, and you're doing it yourself, then 
when you are then later on employing somebody else to do it in whatever capacity that may be there we go you have an understanding and a respect and appreciation and 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 you're able to communicate with them in a way which works you know yeah yeah, that's definitely hands-on is always you bank all that stuff and it really you might not realize what what you're doing at the time but you pays off later pull on it later without again without even realizing it you just you just know you know yeah um and then when you went to set up wire records what was the like how did you fund that was that through a major was that how did that no, um, it was through um, distribution companies in Scandinavia and uh, the UK and they would give us advances and they would pay for our manufacturing and then that would uh, and give us some advance and that you'd recoup that from your sales. So you'd find the act? Yeah. How do you sign the act then? Oh, because we'd, you'd have we'd to sign them to, you know, proper contract. We had a lawyer uh, in... You paid them in advance? We no, we didn't pay them in advance. Okay, so we, it's pay, just... we paid for the recording and marketing. You know, we we I see we facilitated their career. And funnily enough, our lawyer in London, because we had, we did all all the contracts for UK under UK law, UK contracts. Our law, lawyer was um, Michael Smith, who is head of business affairs at Sony. Oh, okay. In, in the in the UK. Um. So yeah, I've known him for many years and uh, did all our contracts so you signed the act to wire records and then they're publishing to red herring yeah in pretty much pretty much that on everything yeah and you'd the the artists would have managers then or were you kind of this all encompassing not many of them did so we we would tend to do that as well that's kind of like more work for you guys then it was a lot of work but you know we as I say, you just you just did everything, and then as we started to make some money, we then used to hire a sales team, and we'd hired a, you know someone to do the press and the, the, you know, the PR and the TV and radio promotion. Yeah. So we did it all ourselves, and then and then we started to you know do deals with those people, realize who's who would be the best person for which act, and cool. Gradually expanded it. Um, so all this time, you are still outside that major label uh, circle so you're still doing your bit learning outside yeah all my all my everything i did was entrepreneurial my own thing until i was like 29 so all my 20s was that my and then my 30s early 40s was like major i see record company thing so i kind of did it the other way around you know i did it and now i'm back doing something entrepreneurial for 18 19 years so so how old were you when you started wired and red herring wire wire records and red herring we i was 24 25 no i was 25 yeah right. I was 25 and when that when you decided to why did you decide to, to leave it or to close it or whatever okay well i should say that you know three of the acts we got a uh, major deals for so we would license it to major major companies in america or the uk actually all in america actually just all in america yeah, virgin was the new virgin america and there was irs and there was and there was geffen okay so yeah we used to do a lot of stuff in america so pear and i used to be in la and uh and new york quite a bit and we had a distribution base and a pr company in uh germany as well so our distributor was in hanover and a guy who did our promotion was in hamburg so that was our setup in Germany. And that was before the wall came down, the Berlin Wall. So we used to, you know, Pear and I used to, you know, we'd fly into 
West Berlin or flying to Hamburg actually usually and then we'd go and we'd drive to visit our distributor in Hanover and uh, we'd have meetings with our promo guy in Hamburg. You say this so casually but isn't that that's that's a real big achievement mate you've got from 20 yeah. something early 20s yeah to be on the board of you know the venue in uh, in, well, in Denmark all, it, and it, then decide it, let's do a label and for it to actually get traction to the point where American labels are I'm presuming they just call you the American label just call you we've heard this record who's yeah we'd, who's, we'd, we'd yeah or we'd or we'd take meetings and yeah. and with their A&R people and try and actively you know, uh, pitch the record yeah we were just learning and we were young and we were having a lot of fun so you know can you imagine you know he, Pear was like say I was 27 by this time okay. it was all getting going a bit you so he's 24 and yeah so but you know we're, we're out there and we're having you know, we're in America. The touring, we're it's in, life on Amer- the road. We're in America in the eight. You know, we're in LA, and New York in the eighties. That's know? good. Fun. And we're back and forth to Stockholm, but in Germany, and we're driving around, and you know, we're in. I mean, Berlin was such a party city. I mean, it still is, but in when it was just West Berlin, and the war was up. You know, it was it was it was fascinating because <laughs> when you're in West Berlin, there was like there's the wall, and then there's watchtowers on the east side. And at night, they'd have spotlights. You'd see the spotlights going across the water, and you know, if anybody tried to get out or swim across water, they'd get shot. You know, you could see the, you could see machine guns on the you see guns on the towers with the spotlights and everything. I mean, yeah. And we were, I mean, and then they had these transit motorways, as they were called, going into um, into through the east into West Berlin. So if you imagine West Berlin is an was an island in the middle of East Germany, the transit motorways linked the west into West Berlin and we used to drive down these transit motorways, you know, rent a, rent a car, you know, I had my little um, Volkswagen Polo in London, but of course <laughs> I'd rent a nice BMW yeah. in, when, I, when we go to Germany. Going out to you know, a party, you've got to... Yeah, we'd drive, you know, because you could drive at the speed you wanted on the autobahns, but when you were on the transit motorways, you were in East Germany. So I, I remember okay. being stopped for speeding, getting tickets by East, East German police and... Whoa. You getting would, stopped at that time as well mustn't, mustn't oh yeah have been no the, you you were worried that you would be arrested or something would happen there was th- that uncertainty around um you know the east and the cold war and the, you know those eastern bloc countries at the yeah. time was sort of shrouded in in mystery to an extent but um yeah i remember once you were never supposed to you know take any pitch hikers or anything but we were we'd stopped at this gas station and and they had these kind of chill cabinets with like a hard roll in it and a frank verter with you know with full of water i mean just inedible food pretty much and watered down coffee and just like you know such basic kind of east european bears it was at the time anyway you put these two girls up who once said they wanted to lift to wherever it was i wonder why you did that well, I, w- <laughs> I wonder if uh, they were just hitchhikers. You wanted out of the goodness of your heart. It, well, of course, it was out of oh, the goodness of our heart. Obviously, you know, we, wanted obviously. To, we wanted to help them. But people need to help people. Yes, but we were not, as they told us, we were not supposed to be picking. You know, it, it was illegal what we were doing. Okay, um, and uh, you know, because you have to have visas to go. Back. I mean, you you can't. The suspicion would be that you were trying to smuggle them into West Berlin. That would that's, be the suspicion. Okay? That's so a you, very you, bad. So uh, you could yeah. not. You couldn't go to the border because they were all armed guys searching the cars. They would. They would like do the old. You know, check the metal detector thing. Look in the trunk, in the boot of the car. I see. If you had two East German girls in there, oh, you would have been, been arrested. 
and down goes Wire Records yeah. and Red Herring. <laughs> yeah. That would have been a real Red Herring. That would have, right? been, a real, that would have been a Red Herring moment. So, so we, um, we dropped them off. So I had to drive past. So suddenly there's these guys on the side of the road doing some maintenance work in these orange kind of jumpsuits. And they were looking over as we were dry, slowing down as we were coming towards the, the border to go into West Berlin. And Ooh. I was going, shit, we haven't, we hadn't dropped them off. You know, I can't turn right in towards the border. It check, looks suspicious. Towards the checkpoint. They're looking in. They, what are they thinking? So I kept driving. And f- anyway, I found a place to drop them off. And they, oh. and, they, and they, they never seen. So we had uh, one of our bands playing in, in Berlin or we were shooting a video or both. And so we had CDs, stocks of CDs in the car okay. and, po- and posters and, so we get, they'd never seen a CD or a credit card or anything like Seriously? that. Seriously? Yeah, nothing. So we gave them posters, we gave them CDs and they, they, off they went. And then we turned around and went across the border. And we, when we crossed the border. So they just said, thank you and left. Yeah, but we, we were worried that we would have been seen and then come back with them not in the car, but them knowing that we'd been, that they'd, be that they'd been up. in the car. Okay. Yeah. And right. so we were quite nervous then crossing the border in, into the West. So then I guess people like dating at that time, you can't go to a club and pick someone up then. <laughs> well, you want you in, well, no, you could do what you want when you're in West Berlin. You, I mean, West Berlin was a serious party town. So we shot a couple of videos there. No, but where, where you were though. Oh no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, you can't, you wouldn't, you couldn't, you could not go off the motorway. There were transit motorways. You were locked in until you got to the island that was West Berlin. Wow. And then, and you either flew out of West Berlin or you went back out through the same transit or a different transit motorway to a West, back into the West, into a West German city. Wow, at least, so, uh, so, these times have changed. Yeah. So um, we used to, but we used to, um, you know, have a lot of fun in West Berlin. You know? So, so we, most of your, most of the company receipts were you guys, <laughs> were you and Bear in West, in well, West we, Berlin. Yeah, I mean, we were always working, but we, but that's what I mean. We, we, we learned all that shit and about the business and we had a lot of fun doing it so nice. you can't you know no, you can't we never it. we never we lived on our expenses you know we never really made it. and we put you know so we got a big advance we usually plow it back into the recording we'd hire like a couple of you know we'd hire like really good producers and and record the stuff in really good studios when we got the when we licensed right it advance. to an american company yeah so we'd we'd try because we'd always you know try and hope we'd nail the big one so we yeah. always like plow the money back in we'd be in west berlin and we would we'd shoot a video and finish in the early hours of the morning and you know we'd have stuff to do the next day but we would just we wouldn't even go a, to a hotel we'd just like finish work we'd go to a club and then we'd just go and sleep in the car for a few hours yeah and get up and, <laughs> and get onto it, yeah. yeah do you know what that is that's the joy of youth yeah exactly. right your energy levels on 97 yeah. until the job's done yeah that's good all right, so that was you until uh, 29, you said, I think it was, or 27? Yeah, no, I was 29, and we we managed a couple of producers also at that time, uh, bought somebody else into the company. We sold part of the company to another record label and distributor in Sweden. Which part? It uh, We just sold like a percentage of it. Okay, okay. And we, and so we could keep funding it. Um, and one of them had a recording studio in Stockholm, so that was, we got reduces budget, yeah. yeah. And I, I just outgrew it, really, I suppose. Um, and so it wasn't an argument with Pear in West no, Berlin about something. No, it was very difficult telling Pear that I was going to leave, but um, I essentially just got offered a job, you know. Oh, okay, uh, at Arista, 
actually. Oh, someone poached. You see these companies, they look at the, the big majors, they look and see anything that's moving. They say, oh, okay, if we can't buy the company, we'll buy a couple of key people and make sure that they come and do what they're doing there over here. Yeah, well, maybe, make kind of, yeah. yeah. So yeah. so what, you just got a call from Arista one day? I got, it was a guy at Chrysalis uh, whose name was Roger Watson and he was talking about doing a deal with, on all our stuff for Chrysalis in you know, doing, I don't know if he's buying the company, but certainly getting into some kind of, you know, more, you know, more permanent relationship. Uh, and so he was speaking to you and Pear? Yeah. And okay. then, but then he left, he got, he got poached from Chrysalis by Clive Davis to run Arista in the UK. Clive. And he, and then, and then Roger called me um, and said, do you want, can you, can you come for lunch? And, you know, cause I'd sent him a note saying congratulations on the job and, it wasn't a side pitch. No, it was not a side pitch okay. at the time. But um, I think I might have fancied his assistant. I think I sent her some okay. flowers and I sent him a bottle of champagne. <laughs> it was probably to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, so, and then if he said, if he, oh, no, no, the flowers were actually for you. I mean, she can have them. Yeah, I mean, since her name's on the card as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, it, but yeah, that was, um, yeah, we had, we had lunch and he said, uh, you know, I need some help and can you, you know, do you want a job? And I said, doing what? And he said, well, you can do marketing or A&R or you can do, you know, what would you like to do? So I just... Just out of the blue like that. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, that was over lunch. So... How long had you known him by that point? How long had you been, you know, in talks? At, not for a job, but just generally, yeah. Not that long. Okay. A few meetings over a number of weeks. Um, got cool. along with him and, and yeah. And, and yeah, I just took it took it from there really and, cool. and so that's a, that's a Rista. Uh, yeah it was Arista and and uh I was like label manager there and uh I, again you know so I was applying my kind of entrepreneurial Knowledge. skill sets yeah. in in you know just working with artists and marketing and positioning and A&R all into into a major uh label hold on um, you you're already at Arista right but mm -hmm. there was a brilliant a buddy relationship that you had with Pear. How did you tell him? Um, I just, just went out for dinner, or you were on the no, autobahn. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? I can't actually remember where, uh, whether it was face to face because it wasn't that much. Did you send him a text message? No text messages. So did you? <laughs> did you send him? Uh, send what is it? Facts. Yeah, facts. <laughs> Harry McGee. That was a tell. I'm leaving. So, so, trying to do like contracts and negotiations. We end up having a lawyer in New York as well when we did our American stuff. So, trying to do going back on forth negotiating with. Uh, record companies and lawyers using a fax machine and a telex to start with then a fax machine it was that was uh, yeah that was, <laughs> that was when, you, when you think of it now so no I I pair was alright because I kind of just gave him my share of the company you know we weren't it wasn't like a particularly worth much so I so I just was happy for him just to take it and he and he nice. took it and and ran with it for uh, for a long time and then sort of reconfigure it and figured it in his own way and he did well. Um, okay, so that that went on to do well then. It it, it went on to do well, yeah, particularly um, in Scandinavia. Nice. And then I ended up um, 
you know, years later, um, suing him hiring, for your halfback, hi, hi, no, hiring <laughs> him as, a, as an A and R guy. So, so um, oh yeah, okay, yeah, you said actually. So yeah, yeah so so um, the relationship's always been good. Sweet. All right. So uh, Ariston. Yeah, I was just label. I was label manager there. We were signing new acts. It was a whole new team, um, and you know, did you enjoy yeah. it? You sound again. You you see again. You talk about like to me in my mind hearing this stuff. I'm like. This is pretty. This is pretty uh, epic stuff. You were at college, business studies. Then you go into a record store. Then a guy comes in. Well, the guy who's been coming into the, the store ends up, you know, leaving his job in London. You go down there and start working. You go to Scandinavia, set up a record label that actually succeeds, which is hard, mm. very hard. Mm. And then you get poached and go to Arista under someone who's been poached by Clive Dave. I mean, this, this is big stuff. You're just like, yeah, yeah, I went to work for Arista. Well, there was, I was a well, label again, boss. There were some people <laughs> there. I mean, it was okay. Yeah. I mean, no, no, it, was, it wasn't just okay. It was, it was a great experience because, but I'd never worked in a corporation before. I'd always had my own little things before. Oh, so you felt a so, little bit like, a bit handcuffed. No, it wasn't even that. I felt it was a great opportunity and it was, and it got my my corporate career started you know because um clive davis um is a legendary record man and just working with arista new york and being in meetings with him uh, particularly over there he, has, he used to have these uh famous uh lunches which uh what day of the week was it? i think it was a thursday he would have the whole company. They used to go on for hours and he would have the whole company around and he'd have it all catered and it was lunch and, and he would play a lot of music. He would drill down on the performance of all the records that were out, particularly on the radio side of things. Um, he would uh, drill down into, um, you know, what the, what the next single was going to be. He'd drill down into... Um, the latest um, recordings um, by, you know, of stuff that wasn't out. So so Whitney obviously was the, the huge thing. That That's his baby, out. isn't it? Yeah. And so we'd, we, you know, he'd, he'd play a lot of music uh, and, uh, and and he'd play, you know, remixes of things. I mean, he would really get into it. <laughs> I mean. So it, sometimes it was interesting and sometimes it was like, oh my gosh, get me out of this bloody room. No, I, I, I would, <laughs> no, never, you I would it. never say that. I, yeah. I, it, it was absolutely fascinating. It was, the whole thing was an education. Nice. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I figured out, you know, a lot of things and what I wanted and where I fitted. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know what, I can, I, I think I want to, you know, stay on this side of the fence, so to speak. Okay. Um, but the main thing. Where was it that you fitted? I think I think I felt I could bring my kind of entrepreneurial uh, flair into into a corporate situation, uh, and I got the balance of of uh, being able to uh, bring something that maybe other people couldn't bring, and and not pissing people off too much. You know, okay. somewhere in between. That's the thing; it's such a political game. Once you're in a corporate scenario, you can be entrepreneurial, but you do have to know how to politically move around. Otherwise, you offend someone. Yeah. You step on someone's toes. Exactly. Or it's a it's a what is it? Uh, uh, walking the tightrope. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I the main uh, artist that uh, that that I on the UK side of things that we that we signed and had successes was Lisa Stansfield. Oh wow, big! So, uh, 
you know, we had this, um, the biggest, the, the big hit that Broker was all around the world. Yeah. Amazing Gee. record, amazing yeah. song, yeah, yeah. amazing record. Um, and I, I, uh, I remember having that on a cassette in my, in my, in my car. Um, <laughs> I mean, my first company car was, uh, Actually, my first company car, they gave me like a Ford, they gave me this convertible Ford, es red Ford Escort Sport whenever they said, <laughs> you can order what car you want, but can you have this car for now? <laughs> and I remember I got stopped for speeding uh, on the motorway. I was going somewhere, <laughs> I was doing 112 and I got a, I, was, I had to go to court and I was going to get a ban. And the chairman of uh, Arista RCA, which was BMG, BMG um, owned own, own the, the, those labels, at the time, um, he wrote me a letter and, and I went to court and I remember going with my assistant and uh, she was going to drive my car back. She was standing at the back of the courtroom. Anyway, I got a big fine, but I got away with the ban oh. and some points. So, I didn't... so of course they stepped in and helped out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, so I'm in this kind of corporate world and I would never think, I would never, this was just that time, you know, but I would never even think about this now. But I remember the Cavendish this is a sign of the times really uh, <laughs> ca uh cavendish square car park most expensive ncp car park in london yeah i mean i i would pull over at the top of the ramp my assistant would come out of the door and my breakfast would be ready and i'd step out <laughs> of the car and she would park my car it was like that you know in those days i wouldn't even dream when of, there I was would, i wouldn't even dream of uh even even you know asking anyone to do that now yeah. never mind it was that. the height of opulence kind of yeah, yeah. it was it, well it was i suppose it was yeah, yeah so, it's the 80s, it, and so, even yeah. more in even more in america yeah um it still would have been the 80s then yeah yeah, yeah uh, um so yeah that was a great experience and so lisa stansfield had a huge amount of success and the reason why i was talking about the car was i just remember this having this cassette in my car so my mind just wandered off oh into, yeah yeah into my um, a dodgy Alfa Romeo with a wooden steering wheel and <laughs> cassette player uh, and first clunky mobile phone and being on the phone to the height of every night and the height of know. fashion and style at the time yeah really um, but anyway I had this cassette all around the world which I um, played and played and played and, and there's various mixes of that done but the person um, that I met at the time there were several good managers that I've met over the years that made an impression on me. Uh, Miles Copeland, when I had my own label, we did a licensing deal with IRS Records. So Miles uh, Copeland made an impression on me then. Also, when I worked at A&M, we, we had Sting and he managed Sting. So I worked with him again then. Oh, so it's him, Miles Copeland. Then, on well, Lisa Stanford, it was Jazz Summers. So he was um, he was a great manager and um, unfortunately he passed away now. Oh. Um, but, um, you know, he, he was... He was um, a special guy and, and and fought you know to tooth and nail for his artists and he managed lisa stansfield and and uh, we yeah we had a massive hit with that number one record just just got pipped by uh i think it was sinead o'connor um nothing compares to you i think in america oh, just, just song, made though. it just was number one and just missed it so she was number two record in america yeah and uh very successful album uh, and uh, second album was very successful as well. So in the middle of all that, Jazz Summers, her manager asked me when I was at Aris to, to, if I wanted to join Big Life, which was his management company. Yeah. And I had a label which was co-owned co by 
universal or polygram as, as it was known then so so i took that job it was like managing it was managing director of big life and so um he just called me one day said do you want to do you want to join the company and so what made you what made you you this seems to be a, a running trend harry <laughs> you just at the drop of a hat you're like all right i'm i'm, I'm done i'm gone i think um it's good though. I mean, it's well, you know, some people are so reluctant to change. You seem just very like, you know, what? I'll just go. I I think I realised that if I wanted to move in in a, a, create a career um, corporately, you know, and, and and didn't have that control over having my own company. That if I wanted to, you know, get up the ladder, I'd have to make the right moves at the right time. So I think it's. Timing. If you got offered, it's just timing. Yeah, you got offered the right job at the right time, and and if you if you feel that there's nothing else for you at that cut, there's that there's no obvious move. Yeah, then it's time to get out. And so, there's, if that opportunity comes up, you you know you tend to go with it. So that's what timing, I did. Timing, timing. That doesn't come naturally to everyone. That timing thing. Sometimes you know you got a wage, you got a assistant bringing you breakfast at the top of the of the Cavendish car park. You're like, hold on, I want to hold on to this for a, for a second, you know. So to just say, all right, he's offered me something. It's the right time, and just whether by mistake or intentional, you seem to not, you know, timing wise, you've got it right. Yeah, I think it's it's intuitive mostly, but I think you, you, it's to do with the need wanting to learn off off. The next person yeah yeah um so i i was a big life for less than two years we had we you know we had interesting artists it was a sort of mid-sized company right in the center of london in the west end on um little portland street and then yeah, i remember uh, big life yeah. yeah we had some some cool stuff we had uh naughty by nature you know we like we did the orb the orb album went to number one that was uh a big uh achievement on the on the uk stuff nice. and we uh, had the management company and the publishing company as well so it was it was a, a hybrid of things yeah. but it was a great place to learn with some great people and darkus who's now the president of uh ireland jeffrey's the co-president of ireland yeah darkus in the uk uh and he, top level geezer he's great so darkus. um he's in la right now oh no new york He's in New York, does sure. runs Ireland Def Jam as president, yeah. So nice. he's he's um he was like an eighteen year old AR guy, big life. He's a good team. Eighteen. <laughs> yeah, and the guy who was the finance guy there went on to become finance for, for Universal Pictures and then Universal uh music. Yeah, so it was interesting people to 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 learn from. It was great. Um nice. good times, but did that for a couple of years and then I went to A and M records. How did you go to A and M? So Big life. How did that end? Because uh, Polygram ha um, owned half of Big Life, and there was some. How can I put it? There, there were there was a a change in the configuration of the shares in the company, which led to a bit of a falling out, which got resolved. But it it meant that uh, part of that falling out was two of the people, the finance guy and myself, went to Universal uh, or Polygram, as it was, to do other jobs. Okay. So I did A and M for five years. Five years. Um, and as manager, uh, as general manager, as general manager. Okay. So that was, you know, really great team of people. Um, and a quite an interesting uh, roster of artists. I mean, the American roster was, um, it, it was Soundgarden, it was Sting, oh. it was Brian Adams, it was Cheryl Crow. 
big um very big yeah some big stuff and and you and so there as general manager you'd be across all you know just generally looking at across the broad at everything oh yeah yeah absolutely i i pretty much had nearly most parts of the company reporting to me including including promotions and international yeah so that was great you know we had um you know some some good alternative stuff as well martin toa started off as a junior a&r guy there who has uh, gone on to great things in records and and, and publishing as a, as a as an entrepreneur um we also had james lavelle on the mo wax record label and first dj shadow album is, is still one of my favorite albums i bought a new turntable at our holiday home in anglesey um the other week yeah and uh for starters i ordered 80 albums at so 80? every day that week from amazon at the house this is like in <laughs> august or in september and that dj shadow introducing what's called his first album was one of the vinyls that i ordered nice so uh, so yeah um so a classic so yes very strong american roster but um, also quite a developing uh uk one as well and you know it put me in that polygram system so when i was at big life i used to have monthly management meetings with maurice oberstein who's since passed away now he was the head of cbs and then sony as it became then he went to uh, run Polygram as chairman. So I would have a monthly management meeting with him when I was at Big Life and, okay. with, and with Jazz and, and Jazz and was his partner, Tim Parry. And we would, um, you know, you, you come into contact with with, with Morris Oberstein and he was super smart and you'd learn a lot in an hour and a half, you know. Um, it was a good education. Um, then after him, it was Roger Ames who was the owner of London Records who sold um, to Polygram and as um, Roger ended up being the chairman of Warner Brothers worldwide and now um, he's got various uh, entrepreneurial interests in different music companies now but he's still very much in the game. He's a super smart and very interesting music man and he, I, again, being in monthly meetings with him when I was at A&M was, um, was very interesting and then after that it was john kennedy the lawyer john kennedy who's uh um legendary he he was the he was the um polygram um, polygram chairman as it then became universal at that time in his during his tenure and i'd be in monthly meetings with him so you'd learn off these uh very smart interesting chairman yeah. uh, o- over the over that time and then and and, 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 then, this is and, then beca- and then it became Lucian after that. That was when I was at A and M. So because Big Life was co-owned with Polygram Universal, and then A and M was also co-owned, I I was in these meetings with these uh, with these people who okay. um yeah they who were you know interesting. And then, he, and then I had Clyde Davis the first time at Arista as well. So all these people you know, you just sucked you know Bits knowledge of, uh, from yeah. and and they were they were mentors you know in many ways so was and jazz summers himself you know these were these are these were um you know special people yeah so you'd say across the board there wasn't like necessarily one person that stood out it's more like you're grabbing bits from all these people who yeah. were in high positions had been around a bit longer and you yeah. were taking bits and adding the bits that you liked into your own repertoire and using them in your your day-to-day decisions yeah 
how long were you there? I was there for five years. Five years in big stints at each place as well. So five years there, and how did who did someone poach you from there, or did you decide to leave? Did you what happened? I was yeah. Uh, then I met Richard, who just come from Griffiths, who's okay business partner now, and he was at Sony for many years, and he left there and was um, taking a break, and then was hired by BMG to run to be the chairman of of BMG in the UK. Yeah, and, Richard and, told and, me this story. Yeah, yeah. And the big and the main labels were um Arista and RCA. There was deconstruction as well. There was there was there was various labels, but um those are the main main ones. And he uh, hired me to be managing director of RCA, so How uh, did you how did you come across him though? Like how did you Yeah, I just got a call from Richard. Mm. Or his assistant just can you Oh, he was living in a hotel before he bought a place cuz he'd obviously been living in America. Yeah, so, he was so. moving over. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Oh, he'd had a cup of tea, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. and that was it. And then he just offered me the job. He actually asked me, he said, do you want to run Arista or do you want to run RCA? And I said, well, I've been at Arista before, so let's try RCA. So Is that... <laughs> was it... Do you know, again, I think it's the, I think it's just your tone. You're just like, yeah, he said, you know, do you want to run Arista or RCA? I said, you know, I've done Arista, I'll try RCA. You know. <laughs> can I have it? Yeah, yeah you can have it. Oh, I'll give it a go. <laughs> give it a go. It's like yeah. Arista and RCA. They're huge companies, dude. That's yeah. like, come on. Yeah. Do but, you, like, you must, at some point, like, in, in well, this I, journey, you must have gone into a room somewhere and gone, yes, sir. Well, I felt, you know, the reason I went into the corporate life was because I wanted to run a label and I just had to kind of pay my dues and, and I felt I'd done that and I was ready to do that now. So, in fact, when I went back and told... Polygram, or it had just become universal. They just bought it at that point. When I said I was leaving, um, they John Kennedy actually tried to uh, work out a situation where where I could um, be running, you know, something else yeah. for them, and we can make it work. But but yeah, I, I that's you know that I had to take that opportunity really yeah, no, to yeah, run yeah. RCA. Yeah, obviously. Um, so yeah, I did. I, I did that. And then uh, there was a pretty decent stint there, and and Richard and I left together, and we started our management company, Modest. You know, which, yeah, because uh, Richard Richard told a very very funny story of his whole journey, and you know how uh, you know the situation to him uh, being on his own, and then was it he? So he got fired. He said from his position because he obviously was trying to make his own changes in BMG. Yeah, yeah. he was trying to make his own. and around that time. You joining was one of his decisions. Yeah. So obviously, because he's got now, they're just trying to you know, yeah, do the no, watershed. I, I had to, right? I had to, I'd get, go with him. Well, he yeah. actually became head he, of in, he became head of Europe after that was it. After, yeah, Europe did, did all that. So I then uh, was doing a European um, wide job after RCA. But anyway, it happened. Didn't that? None of that lasted that long after that, and we and we had yeah. the falling out. So again, you know, you th- this is one of the things that I learned. You know. Um, you know, there's always a reason for you making decisions, even if it's subconscious. Um, you know, I learned all that stuff about the processes when I have my own label with Pear. Um, and then you kind of put that into context in a major label when you've got all those resources and all that funding. It's a whole different ball game, but the principles are the same. And But the main the main principles that are the same are, are the way you interact with artists and, and the way you you know, work with them, with artists in, in 
in their development and with their managers to try and get the best result for everybody so i think if you have if you're not able to empathize in some way with artists then it's 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 you know you can't do that job in a record company properly yeah um, so management seemed the obvious place to go and and as i said i'd i had learned from managers various managers you know particularly um uh, miles copeland and jazz summers and the other one was bruce allen who was brian adams's manager uh mm-hmm. who does michael buble now and has done for a while and another artist another enormous you know, from you know canadian um guy and yeah so i said to richard you know we there was a lot of what we'd call cottage industry managers in the uk um and and not not really professional setups i mean you know it's very much like that now to an extent you know a friend of the artists and um you know no no great ambition but just just not just a manager set up around the career of that artist and nothing else and i thought you know what there's room for a bigger management company in the uk something which is a bit more kind of all, all service you know full service something with a bit more ambition yeah. set up a bit more like some of the american management companies i see so you you saw a fundamental difference between the way american uh, management companies were set up and the uk ones yeah so okay. i thought we could set up a management company that in europe or the uk at least you know had some kind of scale and obviously it would take a while to build it but i thought with our experience you know we i oh, haven't been in the labels yeah yeah and i thought at that time that i that that was, you know, the most important thing or a very important thing. But, um, and it is and it was, but I, you know, it's only a small part of it, having that label experience. Because I think, you know, learning how to work closer with artists, learning about the live thing and learning about, you know, branding and merch and, um, you know, to, and publishing and all the different aspects, other things that create the most important income streams, really. But the point is, you know, it's all it is all driven by the artists and 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 the music and the record companies are a huge part of that. But they're all but they're also by no means all of that. So yeah. we we thought we you know we knew the record business to the extent that we that we did through our time in that and Richard had a much you know, longer corporate career than than I had but you realize later on there is so much more to learn so the music business is not is very different from the record business is the point you know I see and we, and we so we knew the record business but we had to learn more more about the music business yeah um uh, <laughs> Richard, <laughs> Richard told me a story about um um, I think it was actually setting up my tour, my first tour, because I was your I was your first artist on the UK uh, management side, yeah. and uh, he said um, you finished a, a meeting with the BBC, yeah. where you had been negotiated for the I think it was the tour, the tour, Fame Academy, Fame Academy tour, and um, you, you came out of the meeting, you got what you want, you came out of the meeting, and then you were like, so what do you do now? <laughs> and then we were like, well, let's phone. What is it? Uh, what's the guy? Steve Levitt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, production north, yeah. and then they obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, jumped in. But what made me laugh about that is with all the record industry knowledge, loads between the both of you. I mean, that's everything you need to know from the record side. Yeah, 
to then move into a side where you were very green in that side, you know? Yeah, we, we were. Had to figure out the touring side, had to figure out how that all connects. Obviously, contractually, you were used to any kind of contract that was going to come your way. But still, the mechanics of it, and like you say, the more, uh, the side, this, I guess this side uh, carries more empathy. You need to uh, liaise with artists much more, yeah. take on, take, take into account their emotions, their feelings, their mm. desires, and mm. different reasons for wanting to do or not wanting to do certain things. Mm. Um, so to start from there and build things to the to the point where you've built them, mm. that's a, it takes that's a a pretty hard feat. You know, not everyone does it, is what I mean. No, but you know, trying to get a grip on that live side, um, we we were fortunate that the beginning, I mean. I, your first tour, you know, we 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 got the Fame Academy um, contract after we left the firm, but um, we negotiated a much better deal for the artists on the Fame Academy tour. It, but our first, the point was, our first tour was an arena tour, which is the Fame Academy tour, and the the contestants on the show got paid a set amount. So we negotiated a, a much better deal, which which. Um, had bonuses in it and and was a yeah a much better amount for each each show or for the tour and then bonuses built into it for the artist so so we did that bit um and we and we obviously um needed to put the tour together so yeah we we uh we made our call to production Walter Steve Levitt and he he taught us um you know the component parts of touring and he's a tight Yorkshireman who l doesn't like to waste money so he <laughs> he he uh he got us focused on the right principles from the beginning so that we could, you know, obviously try and make the most profit for the artist at the end of it. And, um, without, you know, compromising the quality of the production. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was the, the beginning of that. Um, you said across all of my stuff after didn't it? Well, I, on most tours. Yeah. It was Levitt, isn't it? Yeah. 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 No, all, yeah. All of them. So you entered the corporate world, kind of left the corporate world to set up on your own. Although the firm, the firm was um, the well, we were going to, we it. decided to set up our own management company. But then uh, the firm, who were the biggest management company, I think they had twenty platinum artists at one point. 20? They were the, they were wow. the biggest US management company at that time. Uh, they wanted to open um, a European office, um, a LA based company. So they asked us to do that. So we that's what we did. We, so we 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 were the firm. Okay. We only did that for a year, but um, it allowed us to walk through the door, having come out of record companies, to walk through the door of other record companies as managers. Yes. With and the, with, also with, as managers with a huge with big, um, with big acts. Yeah. And with the weight of the firm behind us, so that was the beginning of our learning process of management, learning from uh, Jeff Quantnets, who was the the head of the firm it was his company he founded it if um, there was if there was one key thing that you'd say um from a management perspective that you saw different between american companies and the uk managers um setup wise that w made a difference would you or potentially could make made a difference or could make a difference mm. what would you say that, that thing was um it's a good question i i would think the the main difference between what our experience of UK managers and what we were beginning to learn working for the firm, or certainly the difference between UK managers in our experience and the and the US managers in our experience was um, 
more macro thinking and a greater sense of ambition um a, a more um a more aggressive approach by the better managers and just saying just saying no just not just only doing stuff that 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 made sense and and just you know just having a very kind of strict kind of strategic approach to everything and and not and just knowing their shit you know i mean yeah. the, because the good managers that that we'd work with roger davis um who who's a you know a, a fantastic australian roger davis is a a great manager and you know managed tina turner for many years and and Sade and janet jackson and um everyone huge lots lots of um great artists and pink uh more recently uh he um he know he knew international very well and so did uh so did um the other managers that i mentioned to you before um like mars copeland and and um and bruce allen um so yeah that that was that when you're having conversations about europe with them um with those american managers about their artists they they took a world view of things i uh, see so they they took they knew they had a sense of where how to use their artist time what was a waste of time and what wasn't what would make an impact and what wouldn't i see um, so all the small they filter out all the smaller irrelevant stuff and only aggressively go for the more impactful larger yeah, things yeah but quite often you know you're dealing with big artists so th yeah. so they so it's they, easier so that they were taking a macro approach okay um and you couldn't pull the wool over their eyes okay you know oh. all right so that so then that's the approach then that you've progressively tried to use within your company as you move from being firm to being the becoming modest why did the firm bit end um we just we really felt that it, to be honest with you it became difficult um the firm uh, merged there, there was a, a and they got much more into hollywood uh into film uh okay. and that's where jeff quantnet's interest started to go um and we felt it was just you know it, it was great and we didn't fall out with jeff but we just felt that um it wasn't quite working in in the way that um you thought that it we wanted it. To. yeah um so so you moved and then you became modest yeah we 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 decided we decided to part ways um and and also you know working on la time the whole time and and to be really effective we, we you know and you're working on other people's actually not developing anything so all those are all, all the firm's managers um were based in la um but they made the decisions you know and we would try and we would make decisions on a European basis and we would then say, this is what we think you should be doing and we try and integrate everything. And we had great relationships with those managers and everybody in the company and those artists. But um, at the end of the day, we weren't, we weren't at the source of creativity in signing and developing them okay. and their careers. And So you wanted to, be, wanted to be more a bit more in the thick of it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. So then, uh, so I, 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 if I remember correctly, Richard said the first um, kind of like major contract you got under the firm was the, the whole BBC Fame Academy TV show thing, yeah? Yeah. How many records in total 
under management do you think you've sold? I don't know. Like, I, 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 I don't know. Well, I'll get I mean, stabbed in the dark. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I, I mean, hundreds of millions. I mean, you can... You hundreds can, of millions? Well, I suppose so. Jeez. But I mean, it's probably been somewhere. There's been, that might have been written down. But I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, as a lot of people do in, in the business who are, who are successful, you know, you, 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 you have your number one or your million seller, whatever it might be. Next. And you have to move on. You have to do the same again with that artist, and yeah. do and do it with other artists. And and uh, you know you're only as good as um, your next one, your next hit. You know, yeah. and you, you just that's that's where you have to look at life. Otherwise, you know, the grass will start to grow under your feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to keep moving. You know? Yeah. All right. So, um, modest today, mm. you've uh, sold millions of records, mm. and you're you're kind of where you are like what's the you've ticked a lot of boxes what's the next frontier i know you're you still you're still obviously are you still as passionate today as you were about about you know about management about yeah about management or do you feel that like the 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 whole do you feel that the whole landscape has changed that much that it's more about finding your feet as opposed to uh enjoying what you've learned right that's a good question i think it's a combination of all of those things actually i i think yes um i've still got a huge amount of passion for it but um you know it has to be you know something that really floats my boat and you know i you know obviously i want to have a good relationship with my artists and um as much success as possible but you know, if the better the relationship, and the more and the more and the more talent that artist has, um, is is a driver for the whole thing. So that that stimulates the passion. Yeah. So to put that another way, I don't really want to work on anything that I'm not passionate about. Oh yes, no, um, that's got to be yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's key to anything, even as an artist, as a manager, as a, anything creative. You know, any. Any job in the creative world, if you're not passionate about it, there's no point in, in doing it. So yeah, yeah. If you know that's starting on the wrong foot, if you if you did that, yeah, yeah. But but the but the thrill and the sense of achievement from bringing something new through is is still as satisfying today, yeah, um, as it always has been. Yeah. Um, but also, what's really satisfying, I think, when you built a company, it, it, in a sense, it's even more satisfying when I see somebody else just doing it in you know who works for us or who, or who works with us um just doing great work with an artist and and just making things happen and yeah. and and uh honing their judgment to make really great decisions um and just you know whether that's a um, a creative judgment or a business judgment yeah. um decision um uh and that and uh, you know i'm proud of that because those are the people that we've mentored and nurtured um and who've been loyal to us over many years yeah um so in a way you know i i don't want to be trying to do everything um you know i i want i want it to be i want our artists um whether they're new artists looking to sign to us or whether artists that um have worked have worked with us for many years that you know i want them to realize that it's a team and to have trust in the team yeah um and that that's that's really important because rich and i can only do 
there's only so many hours in the day so you know where our where our um where our focus is and where our kind of creative and business thinking is um to allow us to do the best work you know we 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 need we need some create space to be able to do that effectively and that's why you know you have to have good people working for you yeah and i like to think that you know we've we have we've got exactly that you know yeah and that's that's the it's um yeah having having great artists is is the key to building the company but you know having great people is just important to yeah. to keep that solid you know makes sense all right um uh what part of that whole journey have you enjoyed the most what role have you enjoyed the most a and r person manager uh, entrepreneur dj uh, not sure if that's going to work. I've enjoyed different parts of all of it. Yeah. Um, you know, when you really have achieved something and it's something new yeah. and exciting, uh, then, you know, it's about experiences and, and, uh, an, an achievement to, um, to build your skill set, your confidence, uh, to, move on and do the same again or or move on and do something different which is still connected to it and i think so so i've you know i've had thrilling moments in everything that i've done um that that's and that's not to say that i don't want to keep doing it but i also like to diversify and use the what i've learned to to do other things so um you know just back to what you were saying before your question about whether you know um you know what in t- in terms of adapting to things and and what and what do i you know get from you know when i was talking about people working in the company and and achieving things yeah. uh, what you know we have a we were the first record company sorry we were the first management company to have um, a digital department which was bigger than most record companies um you know, and, and but that was five. It's been up to five people in the UK and uh, and somebody in America. And as social media has evolved, um, and the DSP, you know, as as the streaming has evolved and through the DSPs and and all the platforms, and social media has evolved and continues to evolve. Um, you know that that different landscape and and our digital people connecting us to that landscape and evolving strategies for our artists in in different ways and to um uh evolve strategies for new developing artists are are pretty key to our business um so that makes it easier for us to um have an understanding and to combine our skill sets with uh, with the with those people in the company to try and make the best decisions for our artists and to progress their careers so when it comes to um diversifying we've got a rights company we've got a publishing company we've got a tv company we've got a sports company which is golf that we have with nile horan so Uh, much more than a management company now Oh, we are, but the, you know, they're the varying degrees of success. Um, those are the um, parts of the company yeah. uh, in terms of where they are. It's like a portfolio developing. It's like a portfolio. Yeah, um, the TV company um, is not long established, but 
uh, with this little mix BBC One TV show that we have. have. That's quite a big commission. You know, it's BBC One's biggest new entertainment show of, of this year. Wow. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a big budget Saturday night entertainment show. So... How long has the TV company been going? It's been going only about 18 months, but it's already in, into profit, um, you know, mostly through that. But we have other... Um, we've 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 got another series that I think is about to be commissioned. Nice, um, and we have a couple of pilots that are being funded at the moment, and we have various shows in development. We also have a um, TV production company with Ollie Murs, one of our clients, called um, Wrapped Up TV, um, as well as our our main TV company, Modest TV, um, and we're looking at uh, partnering with um, another company in America on something that at the moment, which is more in the um, digital, online, social space. Um, so as a TV company, um, because of the diversification within within those platforms, you know, the traditional terrestrial TV model is, you know, can easily be outdated. So it's a matter of uh, combining, even within the TV company, a, a portfolio of, of things which have different different values and are doing different things and appealing yeah. to different audiences so that's interesting to me it's it's a it's a challenge you know you, you're you're building a company there's plenty of crossover into music it's very creative yeah you know, i'm still working with some of our artists on it um and you're um you know you're creating a, a portfolio of of, uh, of rights yeah. um uh, do you think that's the I think that's well I think but do you think that it's um that's kind of the new new um the way to move forward just generally whether you're an artist whether you're a management company uh if you're a creative entity at the moment you kind of have to have fingers in not all pies but as many pies as you can safely put put your fingers in because it's like especially where music's concerned 2020 has obviously been affected adversely by the whole covid scenario so um for artists and managers of artists and to some extent record labels although they're a bit safer because they're on copyright um the normal streams of income have been uh, um hampered a little so you have to kind of think laterally so if yeah. you're a management company that's already thinking laterally you're already positioned well you know um but I don't know. This year has been a, a, a funny one. I think I'm not, I'm not sure whether the, what I'm trying to get to is: Do you think this is the new norm for artists and creatives to think as broadly as possible? Because music isn't necessarily as fail safe as it used to be. Mm. I think I think broadly yes, but you know I think the main the main problem at the moment through. Um, the pandemic crisis is is obviously for our business the live side of things. Yeah, that's bread and butter for, I mean, a lot of people, especially if you're an act that's got any kind of catalog. Yeah, that's kind of your bread and butter. So you know, it 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 is. Um, and you know, it it's it's unfortunate because, you know, it's not really had much government help. There was there was a you know the government wrote a very big check that was distributed through throughout the art sector but um theater television film music i think it's hard for um a lot of people to relate to the music industry 
as being hard done by. I think people see the artist as front-facing. They see the business as being quite glamorous. People have no idea there are hundreds of people behind the scenes. There's lots of companies that have um, that are PA hire companies, truck trucking hire companies, lighting hire companies, catering companies that um, just have stuff sitting in warehouses and 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 have had to lay people off or, or yeah. furlough people um, who are just doing nothing and 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 are and are and may not be in business in 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 a few months time because yeah. there, there's no concerts going on and then you've got all the individuals who are um you know there could be a guitar tech a drum tech um a, a, a lighting opera a spotlight operator a camera operator a video guy mixing videos at concerts um and out you know a monitor sound guy a, a, an out front sound guy um truck drivers you know um roadies it could be any any yeah. number of people the list is endless it, it, the list is endless security guys um that's just traveling with artists and then you've got the people who are working at the venues themselves um and all these people uh, work freelance most of those people work freelance and they've not had any any work since the pretty much the beginning of march and probably won't for a little 20, while 2020 and won't for quite some time, probably not until a vaccine is, is found. I can't see how, um, you know, you can have concerts, you know, obviously digitally and virtually, but you, just in terms of... Um, live, the real live experience. Yeah, you can't, I mean, and it works as, a, it can work as a one-off, but it, it can't work as a tour because, um, you know, with with uh, with with distancing, you, you, you can't get enough people in to make the fees work to add up to make it profitable it yeah. just, you just lose everybody would lose money yeah. so it's not going to happen until there's a vaccine and and then um you know we, things can start to rebuild you know i sort of hesitate to say get back to normal because it's going to be a transition um but it it's going to it's going to be it's going to be difficult but anyway my point i was making was those those people who um were working and who do work within that sector in our industry um you know they they have they have kids they have families yeah um so they're you know driving driving cars doing amazon deliveries working in you know supermarkets whatever they might be doing to 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 make some money where there is work um uh, and um you know it's it's tough on those people and and we've you know i was listening to something on radio this morning and it was it was all about when they were talking about the live thing and the, and the art sector. It's it's much more about the theatre um, and and uh, and a bit about television as well. It's rarely about music. Yeah. So I was into radio this morning. I was just, um, taking my son to school bus and I was listening to um, an interview about um, getting people back to work and getting certain sectors back on track. So, for example. You know, there's been the um, subsidy to reduce um, restaurant bills for people, like £10 a person up to however many people, and that's just finished. But, you know, that was about getting people, um, saving jobs in restaurants, in in pubs, um, and it's about getting people out, keeping people's morale up, getting people to spend money again and put that money into the economy. And, and it, you know, uh, that was a massive, massive subsidy by the government but um you know the getting people going to um to concerts uh and the theater just going out you know that's that's um not so much uh, on the agenda 
Yeah. Uh, and that is the thing which is, um, is, is, is killing our business. If you're a, an agent or a promoter, um, or a manager or an artist or an, uh, and, well, yeah, an artist or a manager. Yeah. I mean, promoters and, and agents are specifically dealing unless you're, you know, if you're obviously, if you're a, a big agent, you, you know, you, but they're affected by film and television as well. And, you know, it's a branding thing. I mean, it's, it's a, it's broader, but certainly um, promoters and agents on the on the specific live side of things are massively hit. You know, artists and managers can and do have, depending on where the artist and manager is, um, other income streams. But it's it's hugely uh, it's been hugely damaging and will continue to be damaging to our industry. And and not everybody is going to come through. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's if it's uh, ever going to be quite the, the same. same again you know yeah. it's um yeah i you know i'm not saying you know we're the hardest hit sector in the world but you know that's that's where i come from and it's uh you know i i feel it you know it has to be highlighted wherever possible you know buying buying a, a concert ticket is a is a, a luxury item you know in the yeah. big, in the big scheme of life yeah. however you know we are we are talking about um, people, that's how you make people's jobs and people's li- livelihoods you know on, on lots of different levels yeah okay a sobering note but um uh, definitely uh, a poignant one and i think we're you know we'll, we'll we'll end around there do you know what i'm going to take from your story your timing it see you i'm not sure even if you realize it but there's an element to your attitude which is you're, you you find it easier probably than than you think or than you realize to let go and move on and that whole timing thing and just making the decision to move on at the right time, I think is uh, has been key to getting you to where you are. Obviously, the ability to learn and being around the right places and recognizing uh, opportunities to learn. Mm. But you can recognize an opportunity, opportunity to learn, but get very comfortable where you are. So I think that ability to let go and realize, all right, do you know what? I feel like moving on, so I'm going to do it, and not be too, not being too afraid to do that. I think is very, very uh, important. I think, I think what it is for me is that I have to be mo- always motivated, and and to find things interesting. Yeah, I have to always learn, and I have to be stimulated and excited by things. And it's not so much that I get bored by things, but I just feel intuitively that it's time to you know expand and move on or or, or in you know in this case you know when you've got your own company with it that's done do done, something done, new done change well, add to. yeah just diversify um and that's not set you know you just got to put your leg in another area you know you got to stand 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 across different things um just to keep life interesting and and to keep to keep motivated and some people would see that as risk taking but I, I don't really think of it like that i think it's just it's a natural thing for me just to 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 move on when it's right to move on and to diversify when it's the right when i feel it's the right thing to do it's not it does feel natural it's not overly calculated yeah. um uh but who knows we'll, we'll see whether how it works out <laughs> well it's worked out so few, it's worked out well so far harry yeah there's yeah there's, there's a few years ahead Cool. Well, uh, I think uh, any budding managers or, do you know, that seems like there's some life lessons in that one as well. So I think uh, a lot of people will be able to take something from that. So, um, yeah. You know what? I think when you are trying to develop people and mentor people, 
First of all, when you're trying to hire young people into your company, or whatever, how, what, you know, if, you, if you're chairman of a record company or president of a record company or whether you run a management company like ours or promoter agent, whatever sect in our industry, whatever part you're in, if you're in a position where you're able to look at your staff and to get the right balance and to hire people and to, um, to bring uh, new blood into the company, um, you know, what, what, in today's world, you know, and and it shouldn't it shouldn't just be in today's world, but you know it's very important to get that diversity in the company. You know yeah. it's very important to have people of color in your company, and it's very important to have the right gender balance in your company, and it's very important to to have equality across the board. Uh, in, and in, also in knowledge company. base as well, and and knowledge base. But 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 so so you look at that, um, but you. Um, within all of that you, you, know, you have to have um, to try and hire people who are um, motivated and who have an entrepreneurial attitude and you know people say to me oh it's just not the same it's the millennial attitude and you just it's just not the same you know your kids are lazy these days and they don't really you know, they want it all on a plate and you know and th- th- that's quite a generalization to me I think um, you know you just you just have to um, find the find the right people uh, and dig a bit deeper uh, and um, you know it's got so much to do with hard work and with sacrifice and if you're really passionate about something whether it's music or whatever it might be if you want to learn and you've got people willing to mentor you and teach you and you're in an environment where there's a lot going on you can really be a sponge and take absorb it all you know if if you can see that opportunity and 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 realize that that can be the making of your career that that all those all those learnings then you will be recognized uh and um you know if you're smart uh, and and you have that ambition and that passion then and you're in you know and you're in a fortunate position to to be able to to learn as as you know young people coming into our company would be then um you know that there's no reason why you shouldn't be over a number of years successful you know? yeah and, and if you don't recognize that and you're lazy then you won't last five minutes whatever you're doing yeah yeah <laughs> that's true that is true that is true that is very true uh harry on that note um it's been a lot of fun been thank you pleasure. very much for sharing uh, a bit of your knowledge i uh, could have talked for even longer uh maybe i'll i'll, I'll come back another time I, right. I, I just like hanging out with you. So it's been a pleasure. <laughs> I'm going to have more of this uh, pineapple juice. Welcome. Right. Thank you. Cheers. And you know what? The pineapple juice was very, very nice. As was the food. We ate well, we drank well, and uh, yeah, we hung out. Very nice catching up with Harry. Hope you can take something from that, whether it be a life lesson or if you're a manager or someone in the business, uh, some knowledge on how journeys go. All right. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like today's show, please do subscribe. And if you can take a moment to rate this podcast on iTunes, it does make a difference. I appreciate you and your time. If you've got any questions or suggestions for the show or for me myself, please do feel free to email me, uh, someone to get back to you, or we might even uh, use it in an upcoming uh, episode where I do a Q&A or whatever. All right. So send in an email if you can. It's Lamar at the Lamar Show.com. That's Lamar, L-E-M-A-R at the Lamar Show. If you're an artist or a musician and you need a bit of advice, please do feel free. Uh, The door's open. All right. Until next week, my good friends, I'm out.